All right. Man, I'm thankful for these guys. Don't they do a great job? It, and Christian, willing to come and fill in for Mike while he's in Mexico. And Christian graduated yesterday from college. So I don't think most college graduates the day after they walk across the stage are, are doing that. So, man, I appreciate you guys. So, well, this morning we are continuing through Ezekiel, and we're going to be in Ezekiel chapters 43 and 44, 43 and 44. If we're going to understand what is going on in these chapters, we've got to keep in mind the big picture. We've got to remember what's gone on and what it's all about. We've got to remember the fact that that the whole deal with what's going on with Ezekiel is that God's people have have turned to sin. They've, they've turned to worshiping idols to such an extent that God finally comes to a place of saying, listen, I've got to deal with you. I'm going to have to deal with you. And he, he, he causes them to be defeated by the Babylonians who take them as captives. And Ezekiel and, and his fellow Jews are there in Babylon. And Ezekiel is giving these messages to these people who have been so unfaithful to God, that God has said, fine, this is how it's going to work. You're going to be defeated. You're going to be taken captive. And not only that, your city, your your nation is going to be defeated. Your city is going to be destroyed. Your temple is going to be destroyed. But that isn't the worst of it. That isn't the worst thing that happens. Clearly, as we've walked through the book of Ezekiel, the worst thing that happened was what happened there in about chapter 10 and 11. And that's when the Spirit of God, when the the glory of God departed from his temple. The thing that the the Jews were were focused on and centered on there at their temple was the fact that they had a God who was real. Now they had gotten distracted, they had gotten off track and they had begun to wander off and and to worship the pagan idols from the communities around them. And yet, the presence of God was there at their temple until finally God said, listen, your sin is too much. I can't stay here. Because you see, God is holy. And because God is holy, he won't stay in this place that is is just plagued with sin. And so God's spirit departs. And that was the, the low point of the book of Ezekiel. But the, the message that Ezekiel continued to bring to these captives in far off Babylon is that, yes, you're captives. Yes, you're far from home. Yes, our nation and our city have been defeated and destroyed. And yes, God's presence has left the temple. But God isn't done with you. God isn't done with us. God has not abandoned us. The story isn't over. God promises that he is going to come back, that he is going to return for us and that he is going to rescue us and redeem us and renew us. That God is going to come back and again his presence, his glory will dwell in his temple. 
And so that's where we pick up in, in Ezekiel chapters 43 and 44. The Lord is telling Ezekiel about a far off day, a day that even in our day is yet future when there will be another temple there built in Jerusalem. And at that temple, God will come and his glory will dwell there. And in that day, God says, not only is he going to return his people to the land, but he's going to change his people. He's going to give them a new heart. And he's going to put his spirit within them. And this whole dynamic is going to change. Remember that the reason God's glory departed from the temple was because of the people's sin. But now, through Jesus... Through the Messiah, through the cross, God has dealt with sin. He has dealt with that innate tendency that you have and that I have to break his heart, to rebel against him. He's given us a new heart. He's put his spirit within us so that we can be careful to follow his commands, it says. And so the dynamic has changed. And so in the first half of chapter 43, we're going to see the glory of the Lord returning. And in the second half of chapter 43, we're going to see the price that was paid. We're going to see a, a reminder of the cost of that return. And then in chapter 44, we're going to see the result of it. We're, we're going to see holiness lived out there in God's temple. Let's begin. Let's dig in. Ezekiel chapter 43, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. Remember last week we talked about the fact that this new temple would have three entrances, one on the north, one on the south, and one on the east. The main, the central entry being that one on the east that would go straight in towards the inner temple buildings. And it says he led him to the gate that was facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. So Ezekiel sees the glory of God. He sees this, this vision of glory approaching the temple just like he had seen it departing from the temple earlier in the book. Now he sees it coming back to the temple, and it says, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So just as he had seen God's presence departing from the temple now, Ezekiel sees God's presence coming back to the temple. Because of all the idolatry, because of the, the pagan worship that had been allowed into the temple, God would not continue to stay there. And so he had departed, his glory had left. But now, now he was returning. And notice what happens when Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord. Notice what happens when, when he is exposed to God's glory. It says that he fell on his face. 
God's presence was overwhelming. You know, you notice this in scripture. When someone sees the glory of God, they are wiped out. They fall on their face. We see it with, with the apostle John when he writes in the book of Revelation that he falls on his face. Let me tell you this. Because there are today so many people that will tell you that they had a vision of God, that they saw this thing with God, that, that God took them up to heaven and, and let them ride his rainbow-colored unicorn. And, you know, they'll tell you about all this stuff. But let me tell you this. What Scripture tells us is when someone experiences God, they fall on their face because he is not like us. He is glorious. He is powerful. Friends, this is why we worship him. If God were made in our image, we would not worship him. He is God. He is glorious. And so Ezekiel fell upon his face. Verse six, well, the man was standing beside me. Remember, he's got this tour guide, the man who measured out all the, the different aspects of the temple in the last couple of chapters, this glowing man. He says, well, the man was standing beside me. I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. So it isn't the man speaking, but he hears a voice coming out of the temple of God. Presumably, it is the voice of God himself. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. God tells Ezekiel something amazing. He says, this is where I'm going to be. This is the place that I have chosen. This is where I will set my throne. This is where I will place my feet. And it says that, and the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall in between them and me. So the, the kings of Israel had this, had this thing going on where they would get buried near the temple, not in the temple, but near the temple. And God is saying, listen, that doesn't work. Even Solomon, Solomon, when he built the temple, we read there as it describes the temple getting completed. And then it talks about the fact that he built his own house adjoining the temple. And God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's a little too close. That's a little too familiar. That's a little too comfortable, Solomon, because I'm not like you. It says with your threshold adjoining my threshold, only a wall between us. Who do you think you are? Do you think that you can dwell that close to God Almighty, to God who is all-powerful, to God who is glorious? Do you think that you should honor your, your dead kings in the same place that you honor me? God says, no, no. It says, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. If you remember, we read uh, many times in, in the early chapters of Ezekiel's messages how they had brought idol worship into the very temple of God. 
But now God says, now let them put away their whoring. There's a whole different deal now. There's a different dynamic going on. Let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me and I will dwell in their midst forever. Now remember, remember Ezekiel is speaking this to the captives of his day, but the temple that he's talking about and the things that are going to be taking place here, they don't take place until the end times. They don't take place until the, the, the very end. And, and there, at the very end, there is a whole different dynamic that is going on. The dynamic that was going on with Ezekiel and, and the, his contemporaries is that their sin drove God out of God's own temple. Their sin caused them to be thrown into captivity and to have to, to face these terrible things going on. But the Lord promised him, he said, the day is going to come when I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit within you. The day is going to come when God will put on human flesh and he will bear our sin and he will indwell us with his Holy Spirit. There's going to be a different dynamic, God says, a dynamic that will cause him to stay, to remain amongst them. Now understand this, understand this. The reason that God is able to stay amongst them now is because he has dealt with their sin. He has done the work. He has freed them from it. Ephesians chapter two, there in verses eight and nine, it reminds us how we are saved and it reminds us what the dynamic is that allows us to be in the presence of God that he has done the work. What does it say there in Ephesians chapter two? It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. It isn't your work. It isn't what you've done. It's what Christ did upon the cross. We're saved by grace, by the work of God in our place. And so, God says to his people, this is a place where I've chosen to be and I will be here forever now. I will stay amongst you. Verse 10, he says, as for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple. So share this vision. I'm giving Ezekiel, I'm giving you the vision of this temple that I will one day dwell in. I want you to share it with all the people, he says, so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done and, and, no, and make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that is the whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes, its rules, and its whole design and all its laws. And write it down in their sight so that they might observe all its laws and statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. He's going to sum it all up here. This is the law of the temple the whole territory on top of the mountain and all around shall be most holy. Holiness. I remember at the close uh, last week, there at the end of chapter 42, it talked about all these dynamics that were going on with this new temple and how it, it, it was a building with walls and with gates and with guards. And it was in order to make a distinction between the holy and the common. God says, here's the deal with my temple. It is a place for holiness. It is a place for holiness. And so show my people, show them this place for holiness 
so that they will see their sins, so that they will see the, the pagan worship they entered into, how they brought idol worship into my very temple, how they brought their sin into my very temple. Show them this place for holiness so that they will understand that that doesn't belong so that they will turn from their sins, so they'll repent, so they will turn back to God. We understand this concept, don't we? We have to understand that God is holy so that we will turn away from our sin. We've got to understand that if we want to draw close to the Lord, well, we're going to need to turn away from the sin that we've been coddling. Well, we talked about this last week with James chapter 4. There in James chapter 4, James just lays it out so bluntly. There in verse 8, he says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But then he adds this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How'd you like to have him for a pastor? You sinners, you stinking, dirty, lousy sinners. Wash your hands. Okay, the first part's really kind of encouraging. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Oh, thank you, pastor. And wash your hands, you stinking sinners. But don't we need to hear that? Don't we need to deal with our stuff? Don't fool yourself because you aren't fooling God. Don't think that you can draw near to God without also addressing your sin, without also washing your hands. Do you think God is going to draw near when we are caressing our sin, when we won't let go of it, when we won't shove it away? You know, Jesus, Jesus puts it fairly bluntly himself in John 14. In John 14, there in verse 21, Jesus says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus says, you want to know who loves me? It isn't everyone who says they love me. It isn't everyone who sings the songs about loving me. It isn't the words that come out of your mouth that determine whether or not you love me. Do you do what I say? Do you do what I say? And what is the response of God to those who know his command and obey it? I will love him. It says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You will know the love of God and he will show himself to you. It's the same thing that James is saying. That if we want to draw near to God, we have to deal with our sin. We have to repent. Now, here's reality, folks. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free by the cross. When we sin, we do it willingly. And so he says, repent. Turn away. We have a new heart. We have his spirit within us. He gives us everything that is needed so that we can do this, so that we can walk in his direction, so that we can draw near to him, so that he will then draw near to us. 
God gives us grace. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He empowers us. But he will not coddle us. God will forgive your sin, but he will not put up with your sin. God will forgive my sin, but he will not be content with me playing with my sin. Verse 13. We move into the second, the second half of that first chapter, and we see the cost. The cost, the price that was paid in order that we might be able to be in that place where God's presence is. We're reminded of the price that was paid by the sacrifices that are now offered here in this post-cross temple. Verse 13, these are the measurements of the altar by cubits. Okay, so there's a, a whole description of the altar, which is the most visible central part of the temple compound. The altar. Now the people, the people who come to worship God, they don't get to go into the temple building. Only the priests go in there. They don't get to go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence resides. Only the high priest goes there and once a year. So what do the people see when they come into the temple? Well, when the people come into that outer courtyard of the temple, remember they can come in through, through either the north or the south gate and then they can come up to that eastern inner gate so they're in that outer courtyard and they can look in what do they see well they can't see all the way in to the holy place what they see is the altar what they see is the altar the place where the sacrifices are made the 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 altar where the blood of the sacrifice is thrown against the side of the altar they see a place of sacrifice. Uh, verse 18, and he said to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day that it was erected for burnt offering, uh, for offering burnt offering upon it and for throwing blood against it. Part with you, verse 19, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. So the first thing to be offered is going to be a bull, a whole cow, a big one. And then verse 22, on the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering. And, and you shall offer a bull and a ram as a burnt offering to the Lord. This thing's getting some use. This thing is getting, getting sacrifice after sacrifice. Verse 25, for seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for a sin offering, also a bull from the herd and a ram from the flock without blemish. Then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer burnt offerings and peace offerings and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Now, remember, when is this temple in existence? It's not yet, is it? It's still future, even to today. And this is, so this is a post-cross temple. And remember we talked about last week how, how John, uh, the disciple, he declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that he, by going to the cross, paid the, the penalty for our sin. And, and remember, we talked about the fact that Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that the blood of, of bulls and goats cannot, cannot take away our sin. So what's the deal? Why were they sacrificing these animals in the Old Testament if... if uh, the blood of a goat or of a, a bull can't take away sin. And why in the world would they be doing it in the future 
after the cross, after the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has already died in our place. Why would they be making sacrifices there? To point to the cross. To point to the cross. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward. They gave the Old Testament followers of God a picture of sacrifice, of a life being poured out. They would have a they would have a ceremony, a ritual that they would follow where when you offered a sin offering, you would take this animal to the priest and you would lay your hand upon the head of the animal. And it was a picture of your sin being transferred to that poor little goat, that poor little sheep. Now, no sin was actually transferred, but it was a picture. It was a picture to show you that one day there would be one who would take our sin. That one day there would be a sacrifice that would be offered to pay for all our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there in verse 21, Paul says something that I can't wrap my head around. He says about God the Father sending Jesus, God the Son, to take our sin. He said, for our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. Jesus, who knew no sin, did not sin, lived a perfect life, was pure, was holy as God himself. He so identified with our sin. He didn't just carry it for a while. He took it as his own. Paul says it this way, he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin in my place, in your place. And he bore it upon the cross. He took our sin so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. I can't wrap my mind around that either. I know me. <laughs> that doesn't sound like me. And yet my Savior took my sin and gave me his righteousness. And all of these sacrifices that are going to take place in this yet future temple, they're pointers, they're reminders of the price that was paid, of what it cost for our Savior to cleanse us. Folks, I think we... we we forget that. We are so sophisticated and so clean. Now, I'm not saying I want to start sacrificing sheep up here to just remind us of what blood is and what death is and what the cost is. But I think that sometimes we forget what it is that the Savior did to purchase our freedom. I've, I think that sometimes we, we minimize what we can't even really comprehend that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 44. 
we see this display of holiness. This display of holiness that shows that God himself is holy and so the place that he resides, it has to be a place that is holy, that, that is, is staffed by people who are holy. And when we, we talk about holiness, we're talking about separateness, being set aside for God and for God alone. And so as, as we read all of this, we, we've got to remember it's post-cross. And so the things that they are doing are not in order to earn God's favor, but they are because of the grace of God that has already been given to them. What we read here, it isn't man trying to earn God's approval, but rather it is man's response to God's provision. So the holiness, the, the set-apartness of the temple and of the priests, uh, the following of the rules that are laid out, and the giving of offerings, all of it, it is all a response to God's grace and to his mercy. It's not an attempt to earn God's favor. That's a good concept for us to grab onto, isn't it? Because are we not also, as followers of Christ, called to holiness? But understand this, Christian. Understand this. You are not called to holiness so that you can be saved. You are called to holiness because you are saved. And that's a whole different deal. Understand this. If you are trying to be holy so that you can be saved, that is a heavy burden that you are carrying. That is something that is going to tire you out. It's going to make you bitter. And you'll never get there. But if you are seeking to respond to what God has already done for you, that's a whole different process. That's a whole different deal. And that's what this is about. Verse one, and then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened and no one shall enter by it for the Lord, the God of Israel has entered by it. So remember the, the, the temple precinct, it has two courtyards. It has the outer courtyard and the inner courtyard. So it has two walls and he goes to the gate, the easternmost gate that is in the outer wall where he saw the presence of God returning into the temple. And, and, and he's told this, that gate's gonna be shut. Because that's the gate that God's presence came back to the temple through. And that makes it special. That makes it different. That makes it holy. And we are always going to remember that this is, this is where God came in. So no one else is going to come in through this. And so it's shut. You know what's beautiful about this? When God came back to his temple, he shut the door behind him and locked it. Because he's not leaving again. He's going to stay. They don't have to worry. They don't have to worry that, that God is going to depart again. They can have security in knowing that God is going to stay there with them. And the reason that God is going to stay there with them is because he has changed the dynamic. Remember, it was their sin that drove him out. But God has changed the dynamic because he has freed them from sin. Romans 6.6 6 tells us that we are no longer enslaved to sin. 
And why is that? It's because of Ezekiel 36. It's because God has put a new heart in us and he has put a new spirit within us. He's removed from us our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh and he has put his spirit within us. And what is that gonna do? It's gonna cause us to walk in his statutes and to be careful, observe his ordinances. What God has done for us is given us the ability to walk in holiness. He's given us the ability to walk in holiness. And so when, when, when Peter tells us, God says, be holy for I am holy, he is not asking us to do that which we can't do. He's asking us to do that which he and he alone can enable us to do. And so God has given us this ability to walk with him. Verse four, then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple and I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord and I fell on my face. So again, Ezekiel again sees the glory of the Lord there in the inner temple and he worships. He, he naturally, he automatically takes the only appropriate stance the creature can have before their creator. He falls flat on his face. I don't think Ezekiel planned this. I don't think he was saying, you know, I think today during worship, I'm just going to lay on the carpet. I think Ezekiel experienced the glory of God. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, it doesn't mean anything to kneel when you can no longer stand. And I think that on that day when we are in the presence of God, we will find that we are no longer able to stand. When scripture says that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not saying that everyone's gonna want to do that. He's not gonna say that everyone is going to choose to do that. I think that what scripture is saying is that it is going to be a fact of reality like gravity and we will be able to do nothing but kneel before him and declare that he is above all others. That he is, he is God in human flesh. And so Ezekiel falls upon his face and he worships. He worships. Romans chapter 12, there in verse 1, Paul writes this, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says this, worship isn't what you do on a Sunday morning before and after the message. Worship is how we live our lives. We live our lives in worship of something. Let it be the Savior. Live your life as an act of worship of the King of Kings who knew no sin, but who became sin to pay your debt and to pay for mine. Verse five, and the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all these statutes of the temple of the Lord and, and all of its laws. So again, all of this 
we've got to remember this. It is in response to God's holiness. It is not in an effort to earn their salvation. This isn't follow these rules and if you do really good, then I'll save you. No, it's the Lord saying, you're going to represent me to the world. Here's what I have done for you. Now live this way in response to me. Partway through verse six, uh, uh, enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh uh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple. Uh, verse eight, you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. So apparently in, in Ezekiel's day, the priests had outsourced serving the Lord. I, I don't know, maybe they wanted a little more free time. Maybe they got, had gotten to a place of boredom with what they were doing. I don't know what was going on. But they, they had brought in unbelieving foreigners to do their job for them. Friends, you can't jump hoops with God. You can't outsource worship. You can't, you know, pay someone to do it for you. You can't just go through the motions because he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants us, ourselves. John chapter four, Jesus is going through Samaria and he has this interesting conversation with this, this woman who is an outcast from her village and she begins to talk to Jesus about worship. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Those are the kind that God is looking for. God is looking for people who worship in spirit and in truth. Not those who go through the motions. Not those who get the attendance check mark. Okay. I was talking with a friend this week um, that, you know, you, you can fall in a ditch on either side of the road, okay? There's a ditch on either side of the road. You can get so far off on one side that you're in a ditch or you can get it so far off on the other side you're in a ditch. And so there are people who, they, they won't come to a gathering like this, okay? They won't participate in, in a organized church gathering, okay? And, and so they, they're in the ditch on one side of the road. But we were talking about there's a ditch on the other side of the road too. And that's where we show up to get our check mark. Did, did you notice no one's giving you gold stars? How many of you are old enough and you went to church when you were little and you got those, those little gold stars that they tasted awful. You lick those things to stick it on your attendance chart and it's just like, ooh. Why can't they make it taste good? Because you'd eat them probably because you're a kid, right? Have you noticed we don't hand out any attendance stars? You, you don't get a little check mark for attendance because it isn't about attendance. It's about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. It's about entering in. It's not being here during worship. It's entering in to worship. Entering in. 
Well, those who were supposed to be spiritual leaders had not only outsourced their job, they had led people away from God and to, and to follow after idols, the Levites, verse 10. Um, they had went far from God, going astray from me, God says, after idols when Israel went astray. And they are going to bear their punishment. So they shall minister in the sanctuary, having oversight of the gates. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifices for the people. And they shall stand before the people. But, verse 13, they shall not come near me and serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy. So, so God had forgiven them. Remember, this is, this is their ancestors. It, it, was, it was the priests, the Levites of Ezekiel's day who had led the people into idol worship, but it is the priests, it is the Levites in the end times that he's speaking to here. And he's saying, listen, you're not going to get to minister to me. And it's not because you're not forgiven. It's not because you're in trouble because they did something wrong. It's because the picture that is provided, it's because of the reputation of God. I think that, that there are times that we underestimate, I don't even think it's a word, but we undercomprehend the holiness of God. We, we just don't understand what, why God would be so uptight about something like this, that, that these, these people who their ancestors had led people into idol worship, and yet he says, no, you don't get to minister to me. You, you're going to get to serve. You still get to do something you're not worthy of doing, but you don't get to do this thing because if you did this thing, you'd be representing me. And I am so holy. I am so holy that you can't even comprehend it. You ever come into a, a room in the middle of summer and you make the statement, oh, it's freezing in here. In reality, it's 72, okay? That, that's not quite freezing. But we say that, don't we? We walk into a, a room in the middle of summer, the AC's on, oh, it's freezing. Or maybe in the spring or in the fall, we walk out into a cold rain. And we go, oh, it's just freezing in, out here, you know? And actually, it's 44 degrees and raining. It's not quite freezing. Or maybe, you know, we are in North Idaho, you step out your door in January, and it's a blizzard. And it is freezing out there. And white. And you can't see anything. But you know what? That's just freezing, freezing there's something beyond that sort of freezing. There's something beyond water turning into snow and ice. In chemistry, they teach you about um, something called absolute zero, okay? Absolute zero is where molecules quit moving, okay? That, that's, that's freezing. That's when everything stops, Zero degrees Kelvin, absolute zero. Nothing happens there. We comprehend God's holiness to be like an air-conditioned room on a hot day. But it's actually absolute zero. God's holiness is so far beyond our ability to conceive it that there are times that God does things and he, he, he outlines all of these rules for the priests. 
He gives them all of these standards that, that they have to follow. He talks about what they wear in verses 15 and 17, that they have to wear linen and not wool. And he, he talks about how they cut their hair uh, in verse 20 and verse 21, what they're allowed to drink or not drink. And verse 22, even who they marry. Why? Why all of this? Verse 23, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common. They will teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. God says, listen, this place, this temple, and these people who are going to serve there, these priests, and by the way, understand this, you and I, we are all priests, right? We are all ambassadors. We are called to the same dynamic. God says there needs to be a representation of holiness here that is uncompromised. Has that not been the message of Ezekiel over and over and over again? God is holy. We are not. And it's time for change. It's time for change because the dynamic has changed. We are no longer in that dynamic of the old covenant where we were looking forward to the cross. But you and I, we look back to the cross. We experience salvation by the grace of God. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, 6 tells us that he has set us free, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we are then free to offer our bodies, Romans 12, 1 is a living sacrifice of worship, our spiritual sacrifice. It's how we live our lives in holiness to honor the Lord, that we might show the world the difference between that which is holy and that which is common. It says, in a dispute, they shall act as judges. They'll they'll be able to tell people God's way, to show them. It's their job to help people understand God's unfathomable holiness by how we live and by what we say. It is our job as well to communicate the glory of God. God has returned to his temple. His presence has come back. And it's come back to stay because of the cross. And he calls us as his priests, as his temple. Paul says that we are building blocks together, brought together to be what? a holy building that God is building together. We are sent out as his ambassadors. We are a, a kingdom of priests. We are to represent his holiness to a lost and faltering world around us. And he empowers us to do that. And he calls us to do it. Let's not waste any more time floundering in sin. Let's not give up one more day to compromise, to destruction. Let's live our lives as a sacrifice of worship.
to the King of Kings, to the one who knew no sin, but who became sin on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Ezekiel and how he he shows us these things. And Father, I pray that that you would do a transforming work in us. God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, you, you told Ezekiel to tell the people about the temple so that they might feel guilty, so that they might see their sin, so that they might turn from it. And God, I pray that you would show us your holiness today, that we might see your holiness, that we might turn from our sin. We might surrender ourselves that we might be freed by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and upon us. God, you have called us to be a kingdom of priests to minister to each other. You have poured out your Spirit upon us so that it isn't just a dynamic of us trying harder or doing better, but there is a true, divine, supernatural, spiritual aspect to all of this. And so, Lord, we cry out today. We ask you to work in us, to free us, to stir us, to draw us close to you. That you might draw close to us. Work in us, Lord. accomplish what you desire in this time this morning, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name.